Some people seem to move almost effortlessly from planning into action, but appearances can be deceiving. It all comes down to having a process that works for you. I'm your host, M. David Green. Hack the Process is a show about looking at the systems and processes that we build our lives around to support mindful, meaningful progress. This show explores ways that people get past that pivot point, from having a fantasy to putting something real out there into the world. If you're ready to stop planning and fantasizing and start taking action, let's hack the process together. What we say, what we mean, and what we understand don't always line up, especially when we're locked together in the complex world of business. Over time, those lies can start to sound more believable than the truth. But Ashley Goodall has co-authored a new book, using real evidence to uncover the truth behind nine lies we tell ourselves about work and show us how we can learn to see the reality they obscure. In this Hack the Process interview, Ashley tells us what process he and his co-author followed to share writing tasks at a distance, how the focus of the book evolved to take on a life of its own, and why his own background in music was an essential ingredient in his evolution as a writer. Today I'm speaking with Ashley Goodall, and he is the co-author of a new book called Nine Lies About Work. Ashley, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, thanks, David. Thanks for having me on the show. Oh, I'm really glad to talk with you. So this book, I've been reading about it. I've been reading some of the pre-release information about it. I've been reading some of the reviews, and I've been reading some of the book itself. It's getting a lot of good attention. It seems so, so far. Yeah. I mean, I think the ideas in it seem to be resonating pretty strongly with the people. And there are quite a few folks out there reading what we've written and going, oh, finally, somebody has actually sort of pulled back the covers on all these things that we're told are true that we've always suspected actually aren't. <laughs> it's true. And uh, some of those things, it depends on how you interpret the answers, because it seems like sometimes you say this is absolutely not true. And sometimes you say people just don't understand the words that they're using, it seems. Well, the words, you know, words matter. I'll give you one really interesting example that we have talked a lot about. We we say in the book that, you know, it's a lie that people need feedback. And instead, what we should give people is attention or ultimately our, our reaction to what worked really well. And the word feedback, it has a valence for all of us. So, so you can say, you know, I suppose someone could come back and argue, well, you're just changing the word. It's the same thing. It's actually not. And we go into that. But just to stick on the word for a second, though, we all have a general understanding of what feedback means. And when somebody says, I'm going to give you some feedback, what it means for us is I'm about to receive a judgment of me. We can say the word shouldn't mean that, but in practical terms, it does. Reaction, on the other hand, is a different thing. I'm I'm not going to give you a judgment. I'm going to keep the thought on my side of the conversation, if you like. And that leads you in a very interesting direction. So that's one where the, you have to get the words right, because words have, have meaning. That's why we use one word and not another. If you follow the thread of the words that work, and again, this isn't just you know, we think it would be nice if there's a lot of research behind all of this as well. But if you follow the thread of which words work, they very often take you to an interesting place. And the challenge of finding the right word is also the challenge of honing an argument, if you like. I like that you're focusing in on the language and how we use it, you know, where we live, our brains, the world that we create around us, it's all just a map that we create through our language. And if we don't use the right words, and we don't understand how they're being interpreted, what I say and what you hear are completely different things. Exactly, exactly. And, and one can be careless about it. 
certainly in the world of work, where there are certain words that are used to stand for certain things. And we, we very often don't push into the words and say, well, what is the impact of that word on someone else? How do they understand it? I may mean one thing, but if you're hearing another thing, then that can't be good for either of us. Semantically, the work world is such a strange environment because it's so full of acronyms and buzzwords, not only unique to professions, but also unique to companies and then unique to organizations and sub-organizations within companies. It's very challenging to kind of find a way to map through that and really understand what the language is performing. And it's it's worth asking, you know, where do these words come from, particularly at work? You know, there, there are many, many very entertaining books about the ridiculous jargon of the world of work and the ridiculous jargon that you hear from consultants. And by the way, I'm a former consultant, so probably guilty as charged on that one. And of course, part of the reason is that there are concepts at work that don't have names. So we have to come up with names for them. You know, th- people talk about the org for example, ORG, which is short for organization, but actually now means inside a company, a series of boxes on, an, on a thing called an org chart. People talk about leverage a lot. When, by the way, there's a perfectly good English language word that's been around for a while. It's the word use, but somehow leverage, we want to connote a more focused sort of use of something. So a lot of this comes from there are, there are concepts floating around in the world of work. There are new ideas. They need names we give them names. But because those names don't have history of coinage, they don't have richness, they don't have sort of tree rings growing around them, they can be a weird experience for somebody coming into that environment for the first time. And of course, they can be misunderstood and misinterpreted. So I think that, you know, the words do matter. And it sounds like the the way that these lies around work are structured, it feels to me like a lot of this is uncovering some of those ambiguities in the way that we use language and coming down to the core of really understanding what I mean when I say something and what you mean when you hear it. I think there's, there's a fair amount of that in the book, yes. I think sometimes what's actually happening in some of these in some of these nine lies, some of the chapters, is that you start by looking actually at the evidence of what works according to the research, what works in the real world, and then that causes you to call into question what do we really mean by what we say then, because it seems to be different. I'll give you an example in case that's a little abstract. In the first chapter we talk a lot about culture. And the lie in the first chapter is that people care which company they work for. And the truth that we work our way around to, again, through the evidence of where do people choose to stay or not, is that the thing you choose to stay in or leave is actually a team, not a company. And so we get to the truth, people care which team they're on. And having gone through all of that, you then want to say, well, hang on, what's culture then? What does that word mean? Because the word still is there. We still talk about it a lot. It leads us to what I think is a really nice distinction between your experience of work every day and the stories of the broader entity that you are a part of. Folks wrestle with this when you talk about it in terms of company. I think just because we talk about culture so much without sort of pushing into the word and saying, well, where does that experience live? What does it look like? But there's an easy sort of parallel, if you like, which is to think about country. What's your experience of being a citizen of a particular country? I happen to be a citizen of two countries, so I think I'm sort of doubly qualified to talk about this. And, and what does it mean to be an American? Well, there are certain values, if you like, cultural values. There's a constitution. There's a government. We know about all of these things. There are politics. Goodness me, plenty of those things. But does that shape what your life is like every day? No. It, what shapes your life every day is the people you interact with locally, your local community, your local family, your local group of friends. 
And so it's easy to see the difference there, but because the word culture inside companies is, I think, freighted and overused and undermined, if you like, in the sense of under pushed into, it can be a little bit confusing. And we're hoping to clarify some of that with the practical result that if you happen to be leading a team and working in a company, we've given you some stuff to focus on, focus on the people around you and their experience of work, and you're doing a good job as a team leader clarifying that it, it feels like it could actually undermine some of the power that exists in the hierarchical structure of one of these orgs with its org charts. I remember one of the quotes that really stuck out in my mind in that first chapter of your book was when you were interviewing somebody and she was talking about the stories that the company was creating around the culture. And she used the word evil to describe them because they were being used in a way that perpetuated what they wanted to say rather than what they actually said. Yes, there is I mean, I suppose that's a, an upsetting example that we included at the beginning there. You're absolutely right. And it sort of reminds you that if you're an organization leader, there's only so far you can go with what you what you say and what you repeat and what you focus on. Because actually, that's always going to be trumped by the people in between you and the employees, which is always a you know big nested line of team leaders, if you like. And if you say with the best will in the world, we want to be a company where we encourage dissenting opinions and we'll wait until we've finished expressing them all. And this is the example in the book. And then we're going to lock arms and move. But someone in between you and a team member goes, yeah, I'm not going to play with that. I'm just going to go be quiet, please, because I'm sick of listening to you. Then the person at the top of the hierarchy has very little control over that. So when we when we talk about the local trumps the global, that's a really important truth. It's not that anyone designed it that way. It's not that anyone could design it any differently. It's the nature of human connection. The people we spend more time with who are closer to us have a disproportionate effect on our experience. And I think all of us have seen that in organizations. I myself have done some executive consulting, and I've always had a great deal of sympathy for the role of the executive trying to manage things, trying to convey ideas and to lead through the mechanism of all of these intermediate people who have all of their own leadership ideas. And it, it becomes very confusing, I think, for the people at all levels. Right. And by the way, that's not an argument in the book that the world works that way. It's a recognition that it does. So one of the things that we're trying very carefully to do is to say, look, never mind what we think would be good, or never mind how the world would be if we tidied it up a little bit. The world is as it is in many, many ways. And our challenge is to have the wit, if you like, and the courage to engage with that reality, rather than spending a lot of time wishing it was something that, that it isn't and won't ever be. Absolutely. You've done a lot of evidence-based research around this in the book, but I think in your own career, you've probably encountered a lot of this. You yourself are an executive, true? Yes. Yeah. I mean, what, what is your current role? I lead a, an organization called Leadership and Team Intelligence at Cisco. We built this organization, I built this organization three and a half years ago to focus on how do we create more teams like our best teams in our company? How do we create more leaders like our best leaders? And how can we support leaders and teams with really good real-time intelligence about the world that they're living in so that they can make good decisions and they can benefit from that? So if you like, that you know, connects obviously strongly to many of the themes in the book which is to say the book isn't an abstract exercise in argument. The book is actually informed by how you do this in the real world and what sorts of things begin to happen when you do. And the experiences that you've had by uh, you know, putting together this team and, and trying to do this research and trying to implement some of this, are those the examples that you use in the book? 
There are many examples in the book from Cisco. There are many examples in the book from other companies. We tried to cast a wide net because we wanted to write something that was reflected the curiosity that I have and Marcus, my co-author, has about all things in, in the world. So yes, there's there are many things in there informed by my work at Cisco. But at the same time, as you page through, you'll find Lionel Messi and soccer and the definition of a triple toe loop in ice skating and a story about a space satellite and something about the characteristics of the best pub manager and a ballet dancer and Martin Luther King and on and on and on and on and on. And, and part of the joy of writing it was to be able to range over a very broad set of examples. We wanted to put as much of the world as we could in our book. And we're both very curious about finding insight from different walks of life. You did mention you both, you, you worked with a co-author on this as well, right? Yes, Marcus Buckingham. How did you two get together? I'm curious, how, how did you start working on this? We met a number of years ago now, nearly a decade ago. I brought Marcus in to do a speech at Deloitte. And before the speech, we got talking. And then after the speech, we continued talking. And more or less, we've been talking ever since. That's actually, by the way, a pretty good description. And what we found in one another was a common the sort of kin we found we were kindred spirits when it came to feeling that the world of work was somehow a little bit off kilter and that there was there was research based evidence of this and there was experiential evidence of this. We were both sort of looking at the world of work and going, you know what, there are some things in there that are pretty odd. And we've been exploring and pushing and pushing into that space ever since. So the the germ of the book is it's just an outgrowth of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of conversations that the two of us have had about what our what our data is telling us, what our experiences are telling us, what seems to work instead. And I, I know he's written a few other books as well. Uh, yeah, this is, I think, his ninth book. At what point did your interesting conversations with him gel into the point where you both thought, wow, this really could become a book? Well, you know, Baby Steps is very often an article. It is for many books. And so the first thing that we wrote together was an article that ran in the Harvard Business Review in 2015 about performance review and performance management. And that article got a lot of play and uh, drew a lot of attention. And I think in hindsight, really managed to shift the debate on performance ratings, which is something I'm very proud of. And what we did in the article was we said, look, let's walk through the door of ask the right question, amass the evidence and see where it takes you. And the debate at the time was, should we do performance ratings or not in organizations? And we said, well, that's the wrong question. The question is, how do you help people perform better at work? Because that's what's behind all of the rating stuff. But how do you help people perform better at work? So we looked at the evidence of that, looked at the quantitative evidence, the qualitative evidence, and suggested some things. A little bit after that, the folks at Harvard came back to us and said, all right, well, that's sort of interesting. Could you take that same approach evidence-based, get the questions right, see where it goes, and point that at more broadly at the world of work. And we ummed and ahmed about that for a long time because, you know, we both have full-time jobs. We both spend a lot of our time on airplanes going various places. You know, we thought, goodness me, we can't, we don't, where are we going to, how are we going to find the time to write a book? Because, you know, I, although I haven't been a sort of an author with my name on the cover before, I did actually ghostwrite a book a number of years ago. So I know what it takes. Marcus had written eight before. So we're both sort of looking at this and going, goodness me, how are we going to, how are we going to find the time? And in the end, what got us over the hump was a day of brainstorming where we came up with the frame of lies about work 
And all of a sudden, yeah, you know, sometimes you land on an idea and it's just a clarifying moment. And all of a sudden it demands to be done, whether you like it or not. And then the question is just hang on for the ride because you're going to go to a, you're going to go on a ride with this thing. So we reached back out to Harvard and said, all right, you've been asking us. They've been asking us for a long time. We finally got something that we think we need to write about. And it's nine lines about work. And then very, very quickly after that, we were off and writing. So did you actually come up with the full list of lies as it exists now when you started? On day one, there were 10. <laughs> then as we honed a little bit, one of them, it turns out in our rush, we hadn't realized was a sort of subset or an implication of one of the other ones. So we folded one in. The concepts of the nine stayed pretty consistent. And there were, there were 10 on the first day, nine as soon as we got through the first sort of review of just setting them all out and writing a little paragraph to try and capture each one. The words, going back to the beginning of our conversation, the words we chose to describe each one, we certainly honed as we were editing and editing and editing and rewriting and rewriting and rewriting. But the concepts, those nine things that now live in the book, those haven't changed. Were those like the focus of a lot of these conversations over the 10 years that you two have been talking? Yes. I mean, I mean, we talk, we give speeches, we share one another's speeches. We've done a lot of work. I mean, Marcus has come into Cisco. Marcus came into Deloitte when I was back at Deloitte. I go and visit him and talk to his people. So it's a, a very intertwined and, and rich and wonderful and rewarding working relationship. But yes, we we had been, I think, in the months before we actually wrote down the 10 and then subsequently nine things, we'd been getting up ahead of steam together about <laughs> about some of the things that frustrated us most about the world at work, because the, the evidence that we were looking at was telling us that these things were pointed in the wrong direction. I can hear that. And it's wonderful that you two had such a strong working relationship and, and got along so well. I'm curious what your process was when working together, how how you made time between all your speaking and your executive careers and all of the other things that you were both doing. How did you organize the time and what tools did you use to make it possible to work together? I think this is where it helped that there were two of us because we actually had a sort of handoff and handoff process for a large part of this. So the, the first thing we did when we really said, okay, it's time to start producing words here, was we locked ourselves away in two different hotels in two different weeks. Here's the first practical challenge. It's very hard to get us together for a day. We live on opposite coasts for starters, but then we're also all over the place. So I think there were maybe three days or two days in New York. I know there was one day in Washington where we just blocked a day and sat in a hotel and out tried to write a bullet point outline of the entire book. Just in terms of not the stories yet, not the ice skating, not the not the ballet dancing, not the space satellites, not any of that, just the flow of the argument. That was about 30,000 words when we'd done with it. So it was a substantial thing that we wrote in probably, I think, four days. And we were sitting next to one another and one of us was the scribe and we were just talking and talking and talking and honing and honing and honing. Once we had that, then we could start writing and, I mean, writing, you know, continuous prose and finding the stories and examples, pulling in the research. One of the chapters in the book, chapter four, talks about strengths and talks about the lie that the best people are well-rounded and the, and the truth that the best people are spiky. It would be a little embarrassing if we had not taken a strength-based approach to writing. And so we spent some time while we were together talking about when it comes to writing, what activities energize each of us and are they 
different? And if so, how can we meld them together? Marcus is strengthened by stepping into the world by telling a story to an audience. That's the move that he always wants to lead with. So he's great if you if you say, Marcus, is a blank piece of paper start writing the chapter because his brain immediately goes to, okay, who's listening to me? What do they need me to say? How do I meet them? How do I encounter them? How do I find my way into this? So that was, that was what he talked about wanting to do the most. My strength, which is to say the thing that energizes me the most is to take the beginnings of an idea and push and push and push and push and push until you've exhausted all of the implications. And I always find as a writer, I like to grab a hold of something and keep pushing through it. Because if you push far enough and far enough and far enough, then all of a sudden the daylight emerges and you see something that hadn't been clear at the beginning that is all of a sudden surprising and right at the same time. So that was my thing. And so I said, well, that's what I want to do. And he said, great, okay, we've got this outline. So I'll sit down on a Monday and start typing with the blank pages. And when I get to about 5,000 words, I'll send it over to you. And you push and push and push and push and push and change things and add examples and loop back and explore implications. And then you send it back to me and then we'll edit back and forth and then we'll be done. Essentially, that's what happened nine times, nine chapters from the first draft of the first chapter to the last draft of the last chapter before we got into editing, but the actual sort of core writing process, we got that done in six months. And because we had a structure, but because also we'd identified where each of us would play and we had very clear demarcation of that, we could send versions back and forth and I would always know what he was doing. He would always know what I was doing. So we were predictable for one another and we'd managed to harness where we both had our greatest contribution to make. So the thing got better every time it went around the the circuit, if you like. Two people with full-time jobs, 84,000-word manuscript in six months, I think is testament to the fact that if you can figure these things out, you can actually be extraordinarily productive, even if you're getting paid to do something completely different. It sounds that way. That's why I'd like to dig a little bit deeper into what that process was like. It sounds like the only co-located portion of it was the initial part where you did the first 30,000 words, and the rest of it was done remote, sharing things electronically? We were co-located at the beginning. You're right. So co-located to get the outline. Then we, in this back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, got through four chapters and midway into a fifth. And we had said at the beginning, you know what, it might make sense to plan a couple of days, a few days where we can actually sort of have a mid-course review and see how it's going. And so we got together, I'm pretty sure it was in LA, where Marcus lives. And at that point, we had a draft of the fifth chapter and nothing on the sixth chapter and some ideas on the seventh chapter. So we, so we actually, it was sort of that we were still doing our parallel play thing, if you like, but we were doing it together. So we had a little bit more energy to feed off and a little bit more focus. And in fact, in the middle of that week, Marcus got called to a meeting and had to jump on a plane and fly across the country. And so we spent a few hours going, all right, let's think about chapter six. You, you can draft it on the flight. So he, so he came back you know, 36 hours later, and there was a draft of chapter six, which I could then grab and do my thing. And then when it came to editing, we got editorial comments, obviously, from the HBR team, from a lot of other people that we'd, we'd shared the draft with. And we found we had to be together to edit, because the manuscript at that point is one version of the truth. You've got to decide together, do we make this change or not? How do we tweak this? How do we respond to this? So editing was together and copy editing, which is 
you probably know is a very detailed, demanding thing. Do we want to change this verb here? Do we agree that that should be plural and that should be singular? And do we like the recasting of this sentence so as to make it flow differently? You have to do all of that together. Or at least I can't imagine a way that two people could actually do it together, but not physically together. You could easily say one of you do it and the other one just says, I, I'm not part of this. But we committed to one another at the beginning of this process that we wanted to do everything together and we wanted it to be an absolute joint endeavor from, from beginning to end. It's fascinating to hear that you decided to work sequentially through the book from beginning to end as opposed to moving the chapters in different pieces. I think that's kind of an unusual way to write such a large piece of writing. Probably it's part of the reason that that worked for you is because you came in with a sense of what your strengths were and why you were, what you were able to do well and how you were going to work together. I would love to know how you came to the point that you both knew what your strengths were to begin with. I don't think a lot of people are that clear on that sort of thing. Well, if there are two people in the world today who should be clear on what their strengths are, it's me and Marcus Buckingham, because we have now put a book out there in the world saying strengths are the most important thing at work, the most important thing in life. You have to know what you love. You have to know what you're drawn to. You have to know where you're on fire. You have to know where you're most magnificent. These are important things to know, and only you can know them about yourself. No one can tell you what you feel lifted up by. So it would be a little bit embarrassing if the two of us were clueless about that. And of course, each of us has spent many, many years now helping organizations understand that if the people on a team don't know what strengthens them, if the team leader doesn't know the strengths of each person on the team, the organization and the team won't get very far, very fast. Which is to say that we have both been deliberate and conscious observers of our own energy and our own tropisms for many years. So it wasn't like, okay, now we're going to write this book. Now let's have our first ever conversation about what strengthens us. But what was interesting was to take our knowledge of what strengthened us in, in general and, and focus it on the task of writing in particular. And that was certainly a very helpful conversation. And I can still draw up in my mind's eye where we were sitting a hotel in DC, there was a restaurant outside, there was a particular circular table, there was an umbrella over the table because it had rained earlier in the day. So, you know, it's one of these things where you, you're in the conversation and you think, okay, this is going to really help. This is going to really accelerate us to know these things. So I think, yes, knowing one another very well, having worked together for a long time on a number of different things, knowing that we had to articulate our differential roles in writing this, knowing that our strengths and our energies were the only guide to what those roles should be, that was super helpful and accelerating because we knew where we were going individually and collectively. I think the other thing that made the difference was having taken the time to create a very detailed outline, the, the 30,000 words of bullets, because it gave us, it gave us a scaffolding for the book and we removed bits of scaffolding as we were going through because, of course, the prose always trumps. Certainly when I'm, when I'm writing, the thing that rules is the rhythm of the words and the argument of the words. And if you get on a roll with a particular line of inquiry or line of storytelling, you can't then look at a bullet point outline that you wrote before you knew really what the prose was going to do and say, well, we've got to delete that and back to the bullet. So, you know, they, they get you going. They get you pointing in the right direction, but then the prose wins always for me. But that was helpful as well. And then maybe the last thing I'd say is I'm very glad we wrote it at the beginning and progressed through sequentially to the end, because one of the things that happened was that it began to take on a life of its own. 
And if you talk to authors, this this happens very often, but it's not entirely clear to me how one makes it happen. But, you know, if you're having a, a good few months as a writer, sometimes it does, which is that about halfway through the book begins to talk to you and the ideas in it begin to be ever more finely crystallized. And so because they've become precise and because they've become honed, they can then blossom and take you out in other different directions. And what happens certainly to me as a reader of my own book is that we start in the world of company and team and we start in a world that is very recognizably a world of business. And then we talk about planning and intelligence and we're still in a world of business. And then we talk about goals and we get this notion that the best goal is one you set for yourself voluntarily. And now we're beginning to go someplace a little bit different. And then you talk about strengths and you talk about human beings at their finest. Now we're in the world of business, but we're also in the world beyond business. You keep going. You get to a chapter on um, chapter seven is all about the idea of potential and what's wrong with that. And all of a sudden you're asking the question, what is the biggest unlock for a human being in the world? Then you get to chapter eight and we're talking about, we start with a discussion of work-life balance, but it actually turns into a discussion of life and what a rich and fulfilling life looks like. And then by the time you get to the last chapter, it's about leadership and it's about the fact that leadership isn't a thing, but it's also about Martin Luther King, a particular leader and a very deep in the end exploration of that, which I think takes you from very, very far away from where we began the, the journey and there's something certainly to me in my reaction to King and his words, which we, we go into in quite some detail in the book, that touches on the realm of the spiritual. Had we not written sequentially, I don't think any of that could have happened. It's not something, I, as I said, that I think you can necessarily plan, but it was wonderful, wonderful to have it happen as we, as we went through and passed our drafts back and forth. I can hear the relationship that evolved between you and the text as, as it went forward. And I most, mostly hear fiction writers talk about that, where the characters come to life. And it sounds like for you, this book itself took on a life. Well, you hear authors talk about the book as a separate thing from the author, which is interesting, right? And you hear it a lot. This book, I mean, I've just said it a lot. This book started talking to me. And that sounds like very, very weird. And it's not quite talking to me. It's like the there's a body of ideas, there's a collection of words, there's a, there's a concatenation of thoughts that all of a sudden begin to come into focus. And that focus is maybe different than the focus you'd imagined at the beginning, or you didn't know that there was going to be a focus, but now here, here it is. It's the joy of really pushing on something very hard. You know, if you ask Marcus the same question, because he's strengthened by story and audience, he'd probably say it's the joy of finding your audience and understanding them more fully. That's not how I ever experience it. For me, it's the joy of crystalline clarity of ideas because you've distilled and distilled and distilled and distilled. And when, in my experience, when you've done that, that's when they take wing. I'm going to be interested to hear from you in a year and in five years when you go back and you reread this. What new experiences you have of the thing that you wrote? Yeah, and it, it's funny. We uh, we also recorded the audiobook. And so remember, I said a bit ago, everything was a partnership. Everything had to be a partnership. So you're like, well, how do you record an audiobook together? How do you record an audiobook with two authors? So we did the obvious thing, I suppose, and we alternated chapters. So Marcus read the introduction, I did chapter one, and then he did all the even number chapters, and I did all the odd number chapters. I've spent a little while listening to it, and it's fascinating to hear your 
your co-author's voice reading out some words because you you understand more about how he responds to what's what's there. It's also interesting and strange, but still interesting to listen to me reading out my own words because it, it, it doesn't feel like it's me reading them. It feels like it's a narrator who I happen to know particularly well, and I know the words obviously very well. But again, you have a different experience. So I'm, as you can tell, probably slightly sadly, deeply into all of this. And I don't know where it goes, by the way. I just find it interesting. And I've learned in my life that if you find something interesting, go there, because good stuff tends to happen. We, we don't know where it goes yet, but I suspect that it's going to go into another book, probably digging more deeply into this fuller life that this piece of writing has has taken on. It started off being targeted more toward business with a clear outline with that in mind. And very clearly it evolved as you wrote it into something that was covering more about life in general. Yeah. And so we'll see where it goes. The other thing, of course, about writing a book is at some point it's not yours anymore. At some point it belongs to the people who read it and their reactions are the thing, if you like. We've done our writing. We've done our editing. We've done our interviews. The book is launched into the world. It's not ours anymore. It belongs to the world and the world will make of it what, what it will. I'm sure it is that, that relationship between the, the piece of art and the audience that is actually the artwork itself. Exactly. Exactly. So now the, the book has launched, and there's been very little time so far to get any feedback. But I'm curious what the initial response has been, what, what's touched you about it. So the first thing to say is it's very hard to even gauge the response because there's a lot of it. But, you know, we're both, Marcus and I are both researchers. I mean, his whole career is research. I bring a research bent to the big company world. And so the first question you have as a researcher is, well, are the things I'm seeing representative anyway of the, the overall reaction to this? And of course, you have no way of knowing. It's been great to talk to journalists, to podcasters, to media outlets, and to see in people's questions what resonates for them in the content, linking back to, uh, you know, this book belongs to its readers now, not to us in any meaningful way. So th that has been great to see. And it's been sometimes surprising the fifth lie about feedback is probably the one that we're asked about the most. The ninth lie about leadership is probably right up there as well. But I was doing a I was doing a TV interview the other week, and someone wanted to talk about the sixth lie, which is all about data and data reliability. And that was a lovely that was a lovely surprise to be asked about that one. So yeah, I think it's hard to summarize the reaction. Folks on social media have been thankful. The bet I'll tell you the best one I got. Someone listening in Asia. We created a special website experience for folks who pre-ordered the book. Because, you know, one of the challenges with writing a book is there's a long time between your finishing the manuscript and the thing being published. It's very often a year or so when you go through edits and production and design and all of those things. And so we wanted to be able to reach out to an audience in that year-long gap. So we, we made a website and we said, look, if you pre-order the book... Then we'll give you a code. You can log into the website and we'll post some videos of the two of us talking about each lie in turn. And we'll do 18 videos, which was maybe a little ambitious, but in the end we did 18 videos. So one, one week it would be lie number one. The next week it would be truth number one. The following week it would be lie number two, then truth number two, and so on and so forth all the way through. One of the folks who joined this coalition lived lives in, in Asia, in Kuala Lumpur. When she started watching these videos, she went to the store and got a big whiteboard and apparently it had to be special ordered because she wanted a really big whiteboard. And then every week she would draw little thoughts and a little diagram of what she'd heard on the video, and then she'd come back and add the truth, and then she'd record her observations. 
she sent me a copy of this thing. And it's like someone once said, I can't remember who, the, the only proper response to a work of art is another work of art. Mm-hmm. And this is a wonderful, wonderful example of that because it, it's it, you can see in it, in all of the multicolored squiggles on all of this, you can see somebody's reaction to the thing that you did in the world. And that's a precious gift. I can imagine. And, and I'm wondering when her book is coming out. <laughs> yes, I wonder too. <laughs> I could, I could see that because you know, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. And if you inspired her to the point that she was riffing on your ideas and coming up with new original thoughts around them and how they come together, that really shows that you've touched people. I think what I took away from looking at the pictures, she was trying to find the connections. So she was trying to say, how does this relate to this? And how does this speak to this? And how does this correspond with this? Which from the perspective of somebody who went through the writing of this and was finding those connections revealing themselves ever more powerfully as we went through. That's why this picture resonated with me, because I'm like, yes, somebody sees what we were trying to put in. That's a very happy feeling. That's wonderful. I love the the sense of pride that you take in the writing that you're doing. And it seems like you really do enjoy the writing process. Is that something that you've always enjoyed? Yes, I think for a very long time. I've been writing sort of long form prose for different reasons and different outlets and different purposes for, gosh, certainly, certainly since high school. So growing up, I I thought I was going to be a musician. I thought I was going to be a first a concert pianist and then maybe an orchestral player and then a symphony conductor. I spent a lot of time, I love to this day, the world of classical music. There's something in that that I now bring to writing. So it's like the urge in me to find form and poetry and expression and the beginning of my life was was found its outlet through the world of notes on a page and performance and music and learning everything I can about a piece of music. And now some part of that finds its expression actually through writing. You know, Marcus doesn't know my co-author doesn't. I don't think he knows what it means from the inside when I say this, but he sees it from the outside. But when I say I write like a musician because I'm thinking about rhythm and I'm thinking about themes and words from long back and close back and I'm thinking about alliteration and I'm thinking about short words or long words and there's a sentence I'll give you an example of how that lands for me if it's if it's interesting there's a sentence we wrote in a piece that we did for the half business review to sort of accompany the book and there's a paragraph that ends with the sentence this is where feedback must meet us in our moments of flow This is where feedback must meet us in our moments of flow. So forget for a second what that actually means. I'm just listening to the sound of the words. Exactly. So it's actually a palindromic alliteration. So you've got feedback at the beginning of flow at the end and then must and meet. And so you've got two short words in the air, feedback, meet, must, flow, feedback, must, meet, flow, which for me is a sentence that can end a paragraph. That's worthy to end a paragraph because there's this little polished thing. And then, of course, the idea behind it, you know, it doesn't work if that doesn't summarize 600 words that have preceded it. But that's how I like to think about writing. That's how it speaks to me. I like that. And your your co-author didn't approach writing the same way. I'm wondering if that was the source of any conflict or communication between you around that process. I don't think Marcus and I have ever had an argument. (laughs) I can't certainly remember any ever. You know, the lovely thing about our relationship is we were friends on the first day we met, I think, and and we've kept going ever since. And if you look at the world through the lens of strengths and through the lens of what each of us brings and where each of us is most energized and at our finest, 
then very quickly you realize that you better appreciate when somebody else's strengths are expressed and be grateful when they're different from yours. Because that's all each of us has to offer in the world, right? We can't offer things that we're not at our core. And so I think, you know, difference in approach was never a cause for, for tension. It was always a, a cause for celebration because you could lean into the way someone else had done something. I'm, I'm, you know, I'll remember just to talk about my experience with Marcus as a writer for a second. I remember reading the first draft of the opening of the fourth chapter. I remember reading the first draft of the opening of the seventh chapter and just being exposed to beautiful, beautiful storytelling and a sense of bringing an audience along, written in a very different way, through a very different process than I would approach the same thing, but actually resulting in words that are very beautiful on the page. So we, we both have different paths, but I think the end result for each of us, the end goal for each of us is, is something that's just really well written. And we both have a very strong sense of what that is. It sounds like a very harmonious combination of, of writing skills and being able to appreciate what each person brings to the table is, is such a valuable thing. Um, yes. And I, as I'm talking, I feel like I'm making this sound like, you know, marriage made in heaven. But it is true that we, we just enjoy one another an awful lot and we enjoy working together an awful lot. So when you met, you were already an executive at Deloitte? Yes. Yes. So I'd like to take you back a little further in your career because you've gotten yourself to the point where you're able to invest your time and your energy researching these challenges that you find personally compelling and solving these problems for, for people and helping them understand them and recognize them. But how did you get to that point in your own career? I'm, I'm curious, what led you down that path? I'm not sure I can give you a super crisp answer to that. I'll tell you what, certainly there wasn't any ever a grand plan. I think in, in hindsight, which is, of course, a dangerous thing because we like to tidy the world in hindsight, you know, so with the caveat emptor on hindsight, what I have learned to do and given myself permission to do is to follow my energies and interests in the world and to take those seriously. And then to use those to blossom out was the word I used earlier. Actually, I think that's a good word to blossom into the rest of the things I have to do at work and in life outside of work. So I was talking about how I, how I write by sort of pushing into an idea by distilling something. That's not the only, I, I, I don't only distill things when I'm writing. I distill things anytime I'm breathing. That's part of who I am, right? I'm a distillation machine because I'm always fascinated by, hang on, where does this really lead? What are the implications of this? What is this idea at its core? If we, if we grind and grind and grind and grind and grind, what will reveal itself to us? That's led me to innovation at work. That leads me to be an interesting guy to sit with in a meeting because I'll go quiet for half an hour because I'm grinding in my head. And then I'll say, well, isn't this what's really going on? And shouldn't we really be talking about this? Which sometimes is frustrating and sometimes is useful. But it seems over time that that adds up to something certainly that people want me to sit in companies and do. And then the other thing, of course, is that you can apply the same, let me understand the essence, tropism to the people you work with. And another thing I've learned as a team leader and now as an organizational leader is that it's always about the spikiness of the people around you. That's what you've got to deal with. That, that's the raw material, if you like. You don't get to have an opinion about whether those are good spikes or bad spikes because they are what they are. The people are who they are. 
your challenge is to knit that into something useful. And, and of course, knitting it begins with understanding it. And so, you know, one of the things I, I really enjoy is spending time, you know, every week with people on my team, just talking about the work. But also, I'm sort of curious about where the work is pointing us. What's the deeper thing in there if we push and push and push? And how is this person experiencing that? What's what's going on in their head? How come, How much can I understand of that? So I feel like that's a very abstract answer. I told you that, you know, that this is not something with a, a clearly defined plan where I said, well, at this stage, I want to be a director and then I want to be a VP and then I want to be an SVP. There's none of, none of that. I focused on where I think I can make the best contribution. And I focused very seriously on magnifying that contribution. And I am where I am. I can't tell you that, you know, there's, there's a little bit of a post hoc ego propter hoc problem with this that i i can't tell you that it's because i did those things that i'm sitting in the seat i am today but i can tell you i did those things and i am sitting in the seat i'm in today and and you know it might just have been that i got lucky at three special moments on the way that i happen to run into somebody and i have a conversation and so i would really hesitate to suggest a causal relationship but i think i can tell you what i try to do in my life and how i try to do my work to make it a little bit less abstract, I'd love to double click on that word magnify and the way that you used it. Because I feel like that might be a place where some people could benefit from learning how you magnified what you were able what you were interested in and what were you able to contribute. So one of the things that I can do really well now is I can tell you what it feels like to work in a big company. And I can tell you that in ways that you would recognize were you to work in a big company for any amount of time, whether you were entry-level employee or mid-level manager or senior executive, I can, I can tell you what that's like. I can tell you what it's like because I've been grinding on it and distilling it and thinking very hard and taking myself back and transporting myself in my mind. And very often what helps me hone that is the feeling that something somebody's proposing isn't quite right. So very often for me, the canary in the coal mine is someone will say, look, why don't we do this, this and this, and then this will happen. And I can, I can go, yes, but between the action and the reaction are human beings at work. And I know, I think I can understand how that will land on them. And it's, it's not going to go the way that we, we think it is. So that's the thing I do. That's the thing I've honed. The magnification of that is to say, all right, in what other areas of my job is it useful? to be able to think very hard about how this will change someone's experience of work. In what other areas of my work is it useful to be able to put myself in someone else's shoes? You know, one of my observations about the world is we, is we tend to be, all of us, a little bit self-centered. And one of the risks of that in the world of work is that you think that people will pay as much attention to your thing as you paid to your thing. I don't know, you design a big program if you're in HR as I am, you design a program and you announce it with an email. And then there's a follow-up email and a follow-up email. And you sit there going, great, we're done. Because we've done the brilliant design. We've announced the program. We've opened enrollment, if you like. And then you go back and ask people four months later, hey, why haven't you signed up? And they go, signed up to what? What did it sign up? Huh? And you go, well, we sent you three emails and we had a rollout of the company all hands. And they're like, did you? Oh, okay. Those were three of 3,000 emails I've received in that time. And I, I couldn't make the all hands. It's useful to be able to imagine things from the other end. And that doesn't just apply to the ideas in Nine Lives About Work, obviously, but it, 
it makes you think more about the lived experience of work. And that leads to curiosity, leads to asking people what they have noticed in the last three months, which emails did you read? Which meetings did you go to? Because you learn always from that. I hope that gives you a little bit more color, but this one sort of thought that I feel I do understand that set of experiences leads me to questions. And they're good questions because they start from understanding a lot, I think, about what's going on. Those questions lead to different answers, lead to a greater understanding, lead to more questions. That's the magnification process. And I suppose as I'm saying that to you, if I were to summarize all of the many, many words I've just... Distill it down, man. Distill it down. (laughs) Distill it down. Depth leads to breadth. Depth leads to breadth. You can't start broad, I don't believe. You have to find your thing and then go deep. Because when you're deep, you have better questions, more useful questions, more perceptive questions, and questions that yield more depth. So depth leads to depth. But then when you're deep enough, then you can begin to integrate that out into more and more different walks of life. So I I know that the people who are listening to this are going to want to know where they can find more of your writings and find out more about what you've been working on and what you're going to be working on next. Where should I send them? So Nine Lies About Work, available now wherever books are sold. The Harvard Business Review has, as we've mentioned, there was an article, 2015 article that I wrote with Marcus, and then an article that was in the April edition, this March-April edition of this year, 2019. And if folks want to find out any more about me and a little bit more about where I come from, then ashleygoodall.com has a few more things about me. Fantastic. Ashley Goodall, thank you so much for being on Hack the Process. David, thanks so much for having me. Are you glad you listened to this episode of Hack the Process? Then take an action now. Make a note about something you just heard and how it's going to help you as you hack your own process. And let me know about it. This has been M. David Green, your host for Hack the Process. You can tweet me at Hack the Process, leave a review for the show on iTunes, and visit hacktheprocess.com to check out the show notes for this episode and join our community of process hackers. Thanks for listening.